I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 13 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week produced some of the 1960s most energetic British invasion records, Shell Tommy. He was behind the boards for all of those Kinks hits from You Really Got Me. Oh, yeah. Afternoon. Blazing on a sunny afternoon in summertime. Such classic albums as Face to Face and Something Else by the Kinks. Kiss me with one ray of light from your lazy old sun. He also produced the Who's My Generation album and its title single. And songs such as The Kids Are Alright. The Kids Are Alright. The Easy Beats frenetic, irresistible hit, Friday on My Mind. songs by the band that he thought would be as big as the Kinks, The Creation. They didn't break through then, but creation songs such as Making Time have become staples of films, notably Rushmore, as well as commercials, and Shel Talmy is still awed by Eddie Phillips' innovative guitar playing. Talmy also recalls working with another artist who'll go on to greater success in later years, David Bowie. Shell Tommy lives in Los Angeles and has tales to tell about how he bluffed his way to England in the early 1960s and wound up producing some of the era's most enduring music. He describes his recording techniques, such as setting up 12 microphones for one drum kit, and his use of session musicians. These include Jimmy Page, who played rhythm guitar, but not the lead on You Really Got Me, and the ever-present keyboardist, Nicky Hopkins. Shell Tommy is not shy about touting his role in sculpting these bands' trademark sounds, how he recognized which songs would be hits, and how he arranged and produced them in ways that got them on the radio. He also has some axes to grind in names' names as he details his fallouts with, among others, the Who's and the Easy Beats management. In the late 60s and beyond, the music business and Tommy's success rate changed, and we hear about that too. Shell Tommy has a lot of memories, and he's happy to share them, and I was happy to hear them. I know you will be too. Please enjoy the Carol Pop conversation with Shell Palmy. You were born in Chicago, which is where I'm talking to you from. Right. Um, how long did you live here, and where were you in Chicago? I was uh, on the northwest side, you know, where Humboldt Park is. 
Absolutely. Okay, I lived right next door to Humboldt Park. And I was moved out here when I was about 15 and a half. My uh, mother in particular really wanted to move out here. So you're in L.A. now. You moved out there. When yeah, I, I got moved out. I was about 15 and a half, I think. And uh, I went to Fairfax High out here, which is uh, the de facto music school. Lots of um, music people came out of Fairfax for whatever reason. And um, and uh, and I... Uh, of course, it, I went when I went to London. I was there for seventeen years, so that was my other major residence. And I'm uh, back here and happy to be back here. Were you a music person when you arrived in LA at fifteen and a half? I liked music a lot, and I listened to a lot of music uh, in Chicago on in the radio stations. And um, same thing uh, when I came out here, I listened to all the all the music there was and. Uh, um, there, I remember in Chicago, there, there was a weekly uh, sort of crummy little magazine done on really rough paper that had uh, printed all the, the lyrics of whatever the new songs were. I used to buy it every week and mm. I, I literally, I probably know lyrics to hundreds of songs. <laughs> so so like, what were, the first so- what were the first songs or records that you fell in love with? Uh, the, the first record that really got me into R&B and stuff like that was G by the Crows. And um, once I heard that, I thought, this is really terrific. And I started listening to other stuff and went out and bought uh, records by some of the old blues guys and things like that. And um, and just got into the, the, the whole deal. Uh, I, I love American songbook stuff. I obviously grew up with it. And um, uh, I pretty much like all the various genres. I have pretty much produced every genre, strangely enough, except for country, which I like a lot. And, it's, and some someday I'd like to do some country stuff. <laughs> would be fun. When When you moved out to England, how old were you? was 23 i believe yeah 23 and were you thinking at that point that you wanted to find like british rock bands to produce or was it not a specific no, no it's totally the opposite i i uh the studio i was looking for was conway out here it was owned by an english guy and kept telling me how great london was so i was i went to london for quote unquote five weeks that's that was the trip i wanted to make to Europe before it passed me by and I was going to see London and go to Paris and stuff like that. And I, uh, what happened was that I thought since I didn't have a whole lot of bread, that if I could work there for a couple of weeks and earn some money, that would be great. And my friend, Nick Benet, who was uh, Capitol Records a and uh, I told him that's where I'm going and I'd like to find some way to make some bread. And he said, um, t- here, take a couple of my acetates I just finished and tell me you produced them. I said, okay, great, I will. And uh, which I did, and the two he gave me were Lou Rawls' uh, Music in the Air and Surfing Safari by the Beach Boys. And mm-hmm. when, I, when I played it to Dick Rowe and Decker, he says, you start today. So <laughs> uh, by the time they found out it was all BS, I already had a hit. So <laughs> never mentioned it. So. <laughs> and, and this was 1962? Yeah, two. Okay. So, so you've done a lot of fantastic music and lately you've been doing these, you've been writing these reminiscences and 
on Facebook where you just really get down into the recording of these songs. And it's been such a treat to read those as well. Good. I'm glad I'm glad to hear it. Uh, when I first started this thing, was about a year and a half ago, I think now that uh, I thought um, uh, there will be some interest um, in what I'm doing. And it's caught on. I got thousands of readers a week now, which is really nice. So, uh, so I'm continuing to, um, you know, grind them out. <laughs> is this is this a memoir in the process, or are you just doing? This uh, I have been asked literally hundreds of times to put what I've uh, everything I've been writing so far into a book, and I'm, and I'm having trouble finding a publisher. So uh, I put the word out, and I'm still looking. The publishing business is not great right now <laughs> but but no, they should because these are fantastic stories and yeah. i know there's all this prejudice against oh well, it's a music book therefore blah 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 well but, this this actually is in some ways totally different from a music book and that it's a book full of vignettes covering the entire you know subject so uh i would have thought it's it'll have its own well i mean hell i got built-in sales with the people who are on the facebook so um, absolutely uh, I just can't find a damn publisher at this point. I'm, I'm continuing to look. All right. Well, we'll get the word out. Anyone who's listening to this podcast should okay. be, uh, you know, okay. signing, cool. getting, getting, uh, getting this represented and getting it sold to a publisher by now. Right. What was it that inspired you to start writing these? Uh, I, I probably the pandemic. I think is more stress <laughs> the best answer. Uh, uh, sessions dried up, and. Um, I thought, hell, I could do something here with my time. So, uh, and I've, I've been thinking about doing it for a while anyhow. So it just all came together and I started doing it. People okay. who are listening, you should get on to Shelf Tommy's right. Facebook page because they're really fantastic. Um, okay. Great, thank you. Reminiscences. And part of, part of what's cool about them is it sort of lets you know uh, and, and reminds us sort of what a producer did because producer can mean so many different things and it means something right. different now, I think, from what it meant then. And the idea of the rock producer, when you started, there weren't that many rock producers because there weren't that many rock records at that point. So That's, that's true. Yeah. Did you have like a model you were following or did you just sort of figure this out as you went along? No, I just figured it out. There was no, there was nothing, there's no model to follow. Um, I mean, when I first started as a recording engineer, that it, we were, everybody was breaking new ground. That's why I, I experimented with uh, uh, miking drums with 12 mics and, uh, and doing isolation of instruments and all that kind of stuff. Nobody was really doing. Right. So, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's certainly helped me throughout. Yeah. You're famous for the 12 mics on the drums. Is that, would you say that's your sort of greatest studio innovation or is there something else that, that you feel like had bigger lasting uh, impact? There's little, it's probably, it's certainly the most well-known. Um, I, I've done a, a bunch of other things of how to capture uh, overtones and, um, and isolation of instruments and, uh, and also a, a few things that I worked out how to, how to do with mixes and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I still try to, to find other ways to do things because um, with digital now, in many ways, things are way easier than they used to be. And um, there's certainly more flexibility than there ever was. So I continue on doing all that. The, the limitations you had back then probably 
forced you to have a certain level of resourcefulness that maybe people recording music don't need now because they could push a button and get the sound they want. Whereas back then you were sort of discovering things and having the happy accidents and, you know, figuring out how to, you know, make the most out of what, three tracks or something like that. Well, I just covered it funnily enough in the last couple of three uh, uh, vignettes that I've written in, in that uh, three track uh, working with three track, was you, you have to really sit down and work out how you're going to get everything together and all the tracks together and go three track to three tracks so you wind up with a um, a, a decent uh, finished product. Uh, it, it took a lot more time and a lot more planning than digital does, which of course is easy as hell. I mean, you can get as many tracks as you like to right. work, and you know you're you're not embracing anything if you don't need to, and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, it also Every app known to man is now available on digital, and um, so you can get a, a, practically any sound that you want to get. And um, uh, digital now, of course, in my opinion, has come about as close as it can do to what analog sounds like, including the warmth. And uh, so I'm, I'm pleased using digital. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot easier. How much of your job was sort of being like, I mean, you, you wore so many hats and one of them was sort of being a talent scout slash NR, you would call it later. How much of it was that as opposed to engineering, arranging? Well, I, when I went there, I, I first, first of all, I brought the 12 mic thing with me. And which, and as usual, as I was told in LA, you can't do this because the mics will phase and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I guess you just have to sit and listen. And you know, when a month later, everybody's trying to use twelve mics. So, um, so that that was the first thing I brought with me when they when they, they gave me the the first artist that I that I did. And um, uh, from there, uh, as a talent scout, I was always looking for new artists and good artists to um to do and they asked me to you know bring them in to DECA and see what you think so the <laughs> also the other thing i should say is that part of the deal i told uh dick Rowe was that i am an independent producer meaning i get royalties because nobody in england is getting royalties at the time so mm -hmm. he went he went for that because he was pro-american and uh, so anyway, I, I bring in, I brought in both Manfred Mann and Georgie Fame, thinking these, uh, we're going to love these bands. They're two really good bands. They turned them both down. I thought to myself, this is time for me to become independent. And that's uh, when the next opportunity came up, which was the Kinks. I took them in the pie. Yeah, so. yeah Deco was Deco was having some historic uh, swings and misses around that time. Yeah, they, I mean, they did. Yeah. So that was a reference to the Beatles also for all those of you who didn't pick up on it. And Dick Rose's defense, he, he did not turn down the Beatles. He uh, gave it to his senior A&R guy, who was Mike Smith, I believe it was, uh, to choose. Uh, and he chose the other band, and the name of which now escapes me, but exactly. uh, said, instead of the Beatles. And uh, so it's really not Dick's fault. When when you discovered the Kinks, did you immediately know? Oh, this is this is a band that's going to sort of change things uh, for you for music, or was it? No, you know, I, I kind of off at that point. That, that would be completely wrong if I said I knew that. Of course, I didn't know that. But uh, what I heard on the demo that it was, uh, that I first listened to 
was songs I thought were really good. Um, and uh, so uh, I said, yes, I'm very interested. I will take them in and get them a deal. So that's why that's when I brought them into Pi. And the first couple of records are things that Pi uh, uh, in, insisted that I did that we did not want to do. And so there's the, the first four tracks are really, I mean, they're, they're recorded nicely, but uh, hmm. they didn't make any, they didn't make any noise, which is what we expected, which is when Ray and I got together and he came up with, you really got me. I said, now that is different. I think that's a hit. And uh, so we went from there. Yeah. Now you've been asked, and I'm not going to make you re reiterate that. Jimmy Page Jimmy Page, not, no, I'm no. not going to, I'm not going to make you reiterate that Jimmy Page did not play the solo. No, he did not play the solo. No. Um, he, he did play the uh, rhythm guitar on it. You'd I've seen you say, because yeah. Ray did not want to be playing the rhythm guitar and singing at the same time. And you were recording it live. That's correct. Yes. Is he, is, is he playing it throughout or is it just sort of in the part where Dave is soloing? Uh, no, uh, he was playing rhythm guitar throughout the throughout the track. I mean, mainly I hired him for uh, the the LP, and um, we did I don't know ten, eleven, twelve tracks, whatever it was. He played rhythm guitar and all those uh, because Ray wanted I said concentrate on his singing. And was there a great sort of aha moment when Dave got that sound to come out of that amplifier? Um. It wound up being that way, although we, by the time uh, we started recording, I was used to it. <laughs> I mean, Dave would encourage us to go buy the little uh, pig nose amp and kick it, you know, and things like that. So uh, apart from the, the cones that he sliced and stuff like that. So we, we got a nice growly sound. And I did actually um, uh, chain that to an AC-30. So I had an option of, you know, uh, to really increase the level and all that kind of thing. D were you aware of how groundbreaking that sound in itself was at the time? Not really. I mean, I, I knew we had something different, but uh, did I anticipate what happens? I think the answer is no. <laughs> uh, I, the answer would be it's what I hoped would happen. And the way that it turned out, yes, it was, that was great. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you you know you could look back and you say, "Wow, this was a turning point in rock history." But you know, nineteen sixty four, sixty five, like you don't know that there's going to be a rock history. There no, hasn't been that much rock I, in the first. And place. I, I never said it was going to be a turning point. Uh, I, I like you have heard later on how much of a turning point it was, and um, and that uh, you really got me we played forever and all that kind of stuff. You know, and uh, which of course pleases the hell out of me. Uh, uh, anticipating it? No, how, there's no way to anticipate that. Uh, and even less so these days, I think. It, it seemed like Ray Davis had, um, there were these kind of paired singles and it would sort of make sense with a pattern of you had a hit, so come up with a follow-up. So he has, you really got me and then there's all day and all of the night. Um, and then he was like tired of waiting and set me free, which I consider kind of a pair or well-respected man and dedicated follower of fashion or. or well, those two, certainly the last two are a pair. Yeah. No question of that. Uh, the initial situation is, back in the sixties is that the labels insisted that whatever the follow-up was to a hit, that it had some 
elements of it uh, right, and, right. In, in, in the follow-up. So all day and all night I had um, some of the same sounds that I used for uh, You Really Got Me. How how involved were you at the time in sort of arranging those songs? Um, like how much of it was the band came in and played it and how much of it was you I, saying, I, okay, this is what you guys should do? No, I did all the arrangements. So I, what did I, they come to you with then? They came to me with demos or I, I heard uh, Ray would, uh, who was very prolific, as I'm sure you know, is to come in and it's, uh, it's, I'd sit down with him at the piano usually and he'd play me the stuff he just written, uh, you know, at which point I'd say, uh, you know, that needs more work. Let's put that one on hold and let's do this one immediately. So, uh, which is, you know, things like sunny afternoon. I think I heard like six bars. I said, yeah, okay, that's our next single. <laughs> right. It was that easy to suss out. Um, and, um, it, no, I, I've, I've, uh, I, I consider myself a hands-on producer, meaning that I really am there throughout the entire process from finding the artist all the way through to mastering and uh, arranging is part of it as far as I'm concerned. So, and, um, and you produced all those albums through uh, something else by the kinks, which is, you know, a great album face to face before that is a great yeah. album. Did, yeah. did your role change over those albums or was it pretty much a similar dynamic throughout? No, I think it was a similar dynamic for all the stuff I did. I, the, the, the reason why I stopped recording is my contract ran out and Ray wanted to you know, be uh, the producer. That's fine. I had you know, about three, four years, whatever it was, that I, however long it took to do all those things. My role, I figured it was pretty much the same. I, would, I had a routine going with Ray where I listened to his songs and we'd choose between us you know, what we'd really like to do and uh and going to do the session that oh sorry before that we i always i always rehearsed the band first and worked that arrangement then we go in and do them and um i don't think my role changed throughout the time i worked with them like that was the use of session musicians consistent throughout or were there more sort of on those early recordings and later it was pretty much the band well, with maybe uh, Mickey Hopkins on, on the harpsichord uh, or something no, like that Early on, I used Bobby Graham as the drummer because I did not have a drummer. Uh, Avery was not the drummer at that point. He didn't have a drummer. I used Bobby Graham. Okay. Uh, and, I, and Bobby Graham was on the first album, of course. <clears throat> and I had uh, John Lord playing um, organ. And uh, who else did I have? Uh, I think I had Perry Ford playing piano. And uh, Nicky Hopkins, who I was turned on to by somebody. Um, and he was just a kid at the time. And, uh, I heard him, I thought this, this is some of the best piano playing I've ever heard. And, um, I subsequently started using him exclusively as a keyboard player and, um, introduced him around. And of course he wound up playing for practically everybody. Right. Um, uh, but generally speaking, no, um, there were, apart from the very early on stuff, it was just the kinks themselves playing. Right. What? How did Nicky Hopkins or you react when Ray came in with the song Session Man? Which is kind of funny because you got Nicky Hopkins all over it and then he's and then Ray's singing about, you know, the Session Man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think mainly, mainly we laughed. He never will forget it all The day he played the piano 
terms of personalities, uh, how did the Kinks compare, sort of, and how they got along to the Who, whom you started working with after you started okay. with the Kinks? All right. Well, the, the the difference between the two, and I got on with both bands extremely well, was who was managing them. I got on very well with the Kinks managers. Kit Lambert was one of the worst people I've ever met in my entire life uh, as uh, the manager of The Who. And right. Chris, Chris Stamp never said a word, so I don't even, you know, um, in the whole time I, I did The Who, I, I think maybe we exchanged about five words. Uh, so I got, you know, I got no no comments even to make about him, but Lambert was garbage. Sorry, <laughs> maybe Scum is even better. <laughs> Well, you ended up doing, you did, you did uh, the first album, you did a bunch of the first singles, including My Generation and Kids yeah. Are All Right. Right. And then you had a whatever with him and, and, and well, I, had, I got stuff. a letter in the mail saying your, your contract is null and void, which I uh, took as a ridiculous notion because I made damn sure my contract would be no, would be valid. And uh, so I, you know, I had to wind up suing him. Of course, I won. But uh, I was unable to continue um, producing the Who, which is uh, which is a great shame. I would I did. By the way, I, I never did anything with the Who but hits. Right. Uh, well, and you and you owned that first album for a long time too, right? I mean, I think yes. Oh yeah. No. I well, yeah. I spent my money. Damn right, I did. But I, uh, and all and various other tracks uh, that I did. I I pay for everything. And eventually, you know, I sold them on, but, you know, that's, uh, yes, I owned them. So when they started, when the Who started working with you, Pete Townsend had been influenced by your work with the Kinks. And 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 I'd read that yes. he had, he had, he'd written Can't Explain or I Can't Explain because he wanted to write something that sounded like the Kinks, so, kinks, so you would want to produce them. That is a story I've heard also. And, and, <laughs> it, and, and he has acknowledged it. <laughs> did they, what did they sound like when you, when you first got together with them? I know they were doing a lot of R&B covers at that time, like a lot of British bands were. Oh, no, they were great. I, I uh, was asked to go see them. They were playing at a church hall. And um, I remember walking in, it was this, you know, vast church hall echoey and all that kind of stuff. And they were on whatever stage that was, that was there because of a big church. Um, and the, the first thing I heard was, I'm a man that um, uh, Daltrey sang. And uh, it, it, and I said, again, it was that, you know, eight bars later, I said, yes, I'll sign you. <laughs> it was that simple. So you get them in the studio, and was it was it a similar thing where you were sort of arranging the you know the yeah. arranging oh, those first singles? That's absolutely. Bringing I, I, in other musicians also. Uh, mainly with the Who, uh, the only thing I really did that I I know pissed them off was I uh, had the Ivy League do the backing vocals on I uh, can't explain because. At that point, they were not doing backing vocals, and they got so incensed that they went out to learn to do backing vocals, which they did from that point on. Right. So they did they not envision the sort of call and response thing, or were they just doing it badly? They just they really had no knowledge of how to do them. So yes, I guess doing it badly is probably the best way to put it. <laughs> what what was so what was the mood of a who session like versus the mood of a king oh, session? The mood of all the sessions I did were I tried to keep everything pretty much 
on an even keel and the same. I, uh, I never told anybody any lies. I told them what I was going to do. I was going to go about doing it, including rehearsing, working out arrangements. Uh, and I did that with every band I've ever done. Um, so it, it, the mood was pretty much the same. I, 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 just as, of course, it, if you're including uh, the fact that the people I was working with was reasonable, uh, were reasonable, I should say. And um, for the most part, they were. There's only one band ever that <laughs> I actually walked out on because they were ridiculous. But um, uh, everything. Not every a famous other, band. Uh, well, in their own minds, they were Mandra Memorial. I can tell you, over there, I, 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 they were jerks in the studio. I just said, "Hey, you know, carry on. I'm out of here." <laughs> After you stopped working with like the Kinks and the Who, did you listen to their next works and think, "Oh, I would have done this differently, or I would have done approached it in this certain well, way that they're not I, doing?" I would only be. I wouldn't be human if I didn't do that. Of course I did that. <laughs> and of course I thought I could do it better. Uh, and uh, I, I think the thing I have to say is a whole lot of people agree with what I thought. So, <laughs> uh, it, it's, I mean, the, the thing is I created, I guess, it, that's what I'm credited with, creating the sound for both the Who and the Kings. And um, uh, once you, you do that, and then they go off and do their own thing. It's not the same. So uh, uh, I, I'm more in favor of the things that people really liked, which which I equal many equal maniacally think is had has a lot to do with me. So you know, uh, uh, yes, I liked what I did, probably <laughs> more than I liked what anybody else did afterwards. Well. Yeah, I mean, the next Kinks album was The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society, which a lot of people love those songs, but mm -hmm. it, 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 was, it was an album that didn't have any hits on it at all. And, no, uh, and, and the sound of it is pretty muffled as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know whether if you, I mean, you've probably heard those songs, whether you would have thought, oh, this, is, this should have been the single and oh. this is what they should have done oh, with it. Oh, I had all those thoughts and, and, and how they should have been recorded and what they should have sounded like, yes. Um, it, uh, was a I thought a three or four steps down sound wise from all the stuff I'd done with them. Right. Who's next was probably the first one that sounded like a modern band, and that was seventy one with Glenn yeah. Johns, who I think uh, had engineered yeah. some stuff you'd done as he well. He did a whole lot of stuff for me because he was a ter terrific engineer, and uh, that I did uh, the, the fact that I didn't have to. You know, once he knew what I wanted, he gave me what I wanted rather than me having to know keep talking about it so you know uh, he, he's an excellent engineer he's be, became a good producer originally you know he just was doing engineering when he started producing he, he obviously did some you know terrific things well so the who and the kinks so they both they both have this you know aggressive you know guitar sound they both have yeah. these visionary songwriters you have ray right. davis and uh pete townsend um and and they both you had a lot of big personalities. Um, were you working mostly with, you know, like Ray and Pete or were you, was it sort of, did they feel like, you know, were they both kind of communal efforts once you got in the studio or how, what was the dynamic like for you? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, easy for me to say that they were two of the best songwriters of the rock era ever. 
I, I was fortunate to have both of them. Um, I, I lucked out. Uh, I, I was very friendly with pretty much everybody in the band. Um, uh, Mooney was one of my favorite people. He, he was uh, funny. Um, he was uh, obviously wild as hell. And, but he was, you know, still, I still think he was the, the best rock drummer of all time. Um, and same with all the guys in the band, you know, Pete, Pete Quaith and the, the, with, uh, with, with uh, the Kinks and, um, and, and all the guys I, I was pretty much friendly with uh, throughout. And, uh, and still, I'm still friendly with, with Pete. And uh, Ray and I don't communicate, but that's okay. Was there was there a, a special power when the Who was playing? Like, did, was that kind of like a, I don't know, like a more of a visceral experience? Just, just I mean, obviously the Kinks had a lot of power too, but the Who seemed like they were sort of explosive on a new level as far as rock at that time. Uh, I think that's accurate. Yeah, no question that uh, Pete's guitar playing was extraordinary, and that he certainly broke a whole lot of ground with what what we wound up recording, and. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I can add uh, Eddie Phillips to that in, um, in um, the creation, uh, the creation, because he's the other one that really broke a whole lot of ground. Uh, yeah, they, they were the next ones I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Like when you when you discover the creation and, and the creation, you signed to your own label, right? I did. Um, did you did you think, oh, this is, you know, like sort of the third in this triumvirate of great British bands I at that time? Absolutely thought that and it's one of my biggest regrets ever that i had just made a deal with Ahmed erdogan for at atlantic for them to be taken by Ahmed in atlantic and, and he certainly in my opinion would have made them superstars and they broke up and i could not keep them together i tried my best <laughs> <laughs> but they apparently wound up hating each other and had no interest in staying together, even for a great deal. Right. I mean, you had Kenny Pickett, who was the lead singer, and he yeah. left pretty early on. And he was. And, and he came back and he went, yeah, he came back and forth a couple of different times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He was gone and then he came back. And then you right. had some really good songs while he was gone. Like, how does it feel to feel? But yeah. um, you probably had, well, didn't Bob get that. Garner. We have Bob Garner, who wrote some great songs. Yes. No question. Um, um, and then you had Eddie Phillips, who he basically invented sort of bowing uh, the guitar. On, I, I associate that with Painter Man. I don't know if he did it before then. He, no, he did it on uh, Baking Time. Right, on that too. That's the first one. And um, uh, no, he, uh, Eddie was uh, was extraordinary. He he invented that. Um, he also, it, it, I still think, is one of the most underrated guitarist in, in rock. Um, he was a brilliant guitarist. He could play anything uh, and pretty much did during the time we did the creation. Making Time is one of those songs that it's it's like in every other movie now. It's I remember the first time yeah. hearing it in something in Rushmore where Wes Rushmore, Anderson yeah, has fantastic taste in it but it starts that movie and he also he always pulls out some you know good old you know less you know known kink songs too but right. But yeah, but but I've heard making time, and I think I've heard an ad. I've heard it in a lot of stuff. So. No, it's no, it's been licensed and for a whole bunch of and for a lot of commercials, by the way. Right. So, so, so in that in that case, you as the producer, part of your job was just like, come on, guys, 
keep together so we can actually get this going? Uh, with creation? Yeah. Um, they, yeah, early on, I didn't have that problem. Um, it was mainly the two songwriters were, were Kenny and Eddie, and they came up with great stuff and <clears throat> looked like this was going to roll on. And of course, we had various people, you know, came in and out. Ronnie Woods, I think, was there for a while. And um, uh, we had changes of, of uh, personnel from time to time. But the core people were there. And then they they started coming in and out. And, they, and we, we got to the point where I said, uh, we just made this great deal. And uh, they, it was finito. They, they're gone. <laughs> so, uh, Did you... Did you think those earlier songs would be would have been bigger hits like in the U.S.? If they'd had Atlantic initially, I'm sure they would have been bigger hits. Yeah, uh, that not the way it worked out, obviously. Right, and then and then you worked a little bit with the Easy Beats enough to give them by far their biggest, most well known hit, which yeah. was Friday on My Mind. Uh, I and then did. you had another another sort of producer manager issue oh, with some of that band. Ted Albert was. Uh, probably second only to uh, Lambert in terms of being garbage. Um, you know, he he brought the the uh, basically he got he was jealous as hell. He brought the band over to England and started to just some sides with them. And they had a deal with UA, and UA thought that the sides were so horrible they removed them as the uh, as the producer. <laughs> And that's how I wound up with them. They, uh, their their actual manager was Mike Vaughn. Actually, came to me and said, "Would you be interested in hearing the band?" I said, "Yeah, of course. I know who they were." And uh, so we, we went from there. So Albert never forgave the fact that I replaced him as producer. How many songs did you record with them? I did uh, two albums with them. I think there's two. I think there's two albums. Yeah. Uh, I did the, that. Yeah, one album for sure. I think there are two. So, so the Easy Beats were from Australia. They came over to England. You're in England. Right. Uh, was Friday on my mind like one of the first songs you cut with them? You know, the backstory in that is they came over. <clears throat> I said yes, I'm very interested, and I did not like any of the songs they played me. That um, that they thought should be the first things to record. I said I, what I'd like for you guys to do is go to your flat and sit down and write stuff and come to the office once a week and play me what you've done. And this went on for six weeks and I kept saying, sorry, no, it's not really the right song. <laughs> Week number six, they came in, first thing they played with was Friday in mind. I said, that's it. We're going, we're going to do a session like day after tomorrow. <laughs> so that was obvious to me. That was a hit. That song has such urgency to it there's like a yeah. lot of energy it's a really fast you know yeah. powerful yeah. song was did they did it sound like that when they demoed it for you or were you like let's pick it up well no because they, they were sitting around my office there's, there's certainly not but what i heard i knew immediately what i could do from a recording point of view so um that, that's in fact what i wound up doing uh no but it, it, it the song and the way it, it um they, they started the, the, the uh, intro and all the rest of the stuff. I, I mean, I immediately heard how to record it. It's just, it was, it seemed obvious, you know, that what, the record you hear is what I, I think I heard almost immediately. 
a shell Tommy sound to all these bands and recordings we're talking about. How would yeah. you describe that sound? You know, I, I'm not sure. People have told me I have, I have a sound. I guess I do. Uh, the best thing I can tell you about how I do a record is that, uh, you know, starting as, as an engineer really helped me. I got the chance to record uh, all the wrecking crew as an engineer and so i understood what really great musicians are like and um and then of course i did all my experimenting with with miking and all that kind of stuff and um i evolved a uh, a way of what i really like to hear in terms of how drums should sound and how guitars should sound and all that kind of thing and um, I'm very persistent in the sound I want to get when I do a record. Uh, and um, it, 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 all those instruments have to sound right to me in order to say, yes, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm now satisfied. And of course, the last bit of it is, um, well, the last two bits really are mixing and mastering. And, you know, mixing, which I love to do, and that's why I've been taking on mixing jobs since the pandemic, um, is, um, uh, is put all those elements together and, and make them sound like they're, they belong to each other. I think maybe that's the best way to describe it. Right. I actually spoke with Bernie Grunman um, for, uh, for this as well and talked about like the mastering side of it and, uh, and, and just sort of really got into just sort of what that actually is because there's uh -huh. so much... There's so much more to it than people understand oh, um, yeah. in terms of just trying to make it sound like, you know, like you have the mix right. and then you just want to make, you want to make that mix sound as good as you can without sort of changing the nature of what the mix right. is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, 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 again, I'll go back to the fact that being an engineer was really enormously helpful besides the fact that um, I have a, I don't know if you want to call it knack or talent or something. I can actually, I hear frequencies. Um, I can always, uh, if, if I'm mixing and I, I can tell the engineer exactly what frequencies I want to hear. Mm. And, and um, so if that's part of my sound, that's probably what people are talking about. When you were working back then, were you listening to sort of the other big albums coming out at the time and kind oh, of yeah, take sure. notes of like, you know, like when the Beatles records would come out and, you know, you'd think about what George Martin was doing and with those and how those sounded and, you know, taking any notes from those or were you thinking, nah, that's not what I want to be doing or, you know, the Stones uh, albums, which sounded, you know, different. I, I don't think it's as cut and dry to that. I listened to all the records that came out, some of which I like better than others. And that I, I, question you're asking, did I uh, accept or reject things I heard that I would then use? I don't have an answer for that. Um, I don't think so, <laughs> but I don't really know. Uh, probably some of it I absorbed and, and thought was, was cool, and I probably used it on things I did. I, I, don't, I can't even answer that. I don't know. Were there were there albums coming out around then or other times where you where you would listen and go, wow, that is a fantastically produced record? Um, yeah, mainly I would do that with individual songs rather than with entire albums. 
Um, and I think I still do that. Uh, I think it's almost impossible to do a whole album full of things that, that every song is brilliant. Um, and I, I still feel the same way about it. Uh, but I, I do take note of, you know, uh, well-produced songs and, and um, also voices. I'm very into um, both male and female great voices, and there's, and there's a bunch of them. And they're my favorite things, and I still listen to them today. So, like, what are those wonderfully produced songs that you're thinking of, or some of those voices? Oh, the voices of well, I, I I love voices where they're singing on key, they're singing with uh, passion, they're singing with phrasing. I get to uh, okay, uh, let's see, Emmy Lou Harris, um, oh. Olivia Newton-John, um, Whitney Houston. You also worked with uh, David Bowie early on when he was Davy Jones. Yeah, certainly um, did. Is he someone you kept in touch with over the years? I did. Yes, all pretty much up to the time he died. Yeah. What's what struck you the most about his sort of approach to music? Well, he again, he was brought to my office when he was 17 years old by a friend of mine. And I immediately liked him. He was brash like I had was when I first arrived. And I thought he was very smart. I liked what, uh, the way he sounded. I liked what he was writing. And I really thought that the stuff I did with him were going to be hits. Unfortunately, the market didn't agree. It took him to market about another about five or six years to really catch on to what he was doing. And um, so the, the things I did are, you know, still sound great, but um, they, were not, they were not hits when, when we first did them. How much did you record with him? I think I'd read somewhere that you had sort of an archive of material with him, although I think that was released finally. I Some of that's been released. So what the current thing you probably heard is that I have actually eight Bowie tracks that I did that nobody's ever heard. And uh, we're in the process of negotiating releases for them. So this is stuff that you own and you're yes. negotiating with people to put it out. Right. When's that going to happen? And what is it? Who knows what is going to happen? <laughs> I mean, it uh, depends on uh, a whole, I mean, the, the, the whole market's gone crazy with uh, NFTs and with the latest thing in that line, which is the DAO, which is the Centralized Autonomous Organization, which nobody knows what the hell that means. Um and it's kind of like Bitcoin is going you know, up and down like a bar maze drawers, as they say. You know, so uh, I don't know. You know, uh, we're, we're exploring it. And um, I'm obviously looking for the best possible situation that would uh, uh, and uh, make me money and would enhance Bowie's reputation, which he probably doesn't need enhancing, but I'd still like to see it happen. Have you just been holding on to these, waiting for the right moment, or like how how, did these, how how have these not been released already? Mainly because I never didn't want to release them. Um, there was no point at that. You know, uh, I, I, they were different from the things he did later on, and um, I know at some point I was going to release them, uh, and then when all this stuff started happening about. Um, uh, releasing things that nobody ever heard and. And the NFTs, and it started make it started to make sense. So that's why I got involved in it. So, so what do these sound like? 
<laughs> they sound great. <laughs> I mean, are they like sort of full like band recordings Bowie. as opposed Sorry? to the, no, no, like no, solo, no, solo I've acoustic got, or anything? No, I've got full band recordings. Who's the um, band? Uh, Lower Third or, or Managed Boys, one of the two, I can't remember which. Or, and then it's, uh, a couple of those occasions I got other musicians in. Well, I'll be eager to hear those, and I know other people will be as yeah. well. And there's a whole uh, series of releases that have that have the name or the subtitle from the Shell Tommy Vaults. You got Planet yeah. Mod and Planet Beat and yeah. Shell's Girls. Yes, I um, my um, my archivist, who's also my historian, who's Alec Palau, is uh, very involved in that. He uh, has a relationship with Ace, who is the one to be putting these things out. And um, he's done a hell of a job and, and getting it together. I guess they're, I'm pleased that they're, they're, they've been on Earth and have been uh, released. Do you go back and listen to this stuff? And, and does it, does, do you ever get sort of surprises when you go back and you go, oh, wow, that's, that, that was better than I remembered it or that was yeah. different than I remembered it? Absolutely. I definitely do that. <laughs> and, and definitely I'm surprised at how good some of this stuff is. Um, and uh, actually, I'm a, I'm about to receive a, a whole bunch of CDs that Alec has made for me of things that, in some cases, I haven't heard in about thirty or forty years. So wow. I'm looking forward to that. That should be fun. Are there any albums or singles you look back on and you think, well, that's the greatest thing I ever worked on? Oh, I've got a, a, a several things that I did that I think should have been hits. In fact, I even made a CD of them that uh, that weren't hits. That uh, that's uh, I was positive we're going to be. I mean, I can tell you one. Uh, I did a, I had a hit with uh, Chris White with the Spanish wine, and uh, he did a song called "Don't Look Down," I, which was going to be the follow-up. It was a follow-up. I thought it was going to be a smash. It wasn't. It's still, I still think it's a it's a terrific song and, and an excellent record. Uh, you know, I say so myself. But that was, you know, because Chris was that good. When was that recorded? Oh, God, we're talking about 1970-something. This is, 74. This is not the Chris White who is in the zombies? No, not the Chris White in the zombies. Different Chris. Chris. Yeah. No, look up uh, Spanish Wine. It was uh, the hit I had, and that's, that's still out there. Well, I would love to hear some of that that stuff too. Yeah, I'll have to go back and, and well, check so all that out. Other thing, I, I I was a huge fan of Dickie Brown, who was the numero uno backing singer, but she could sing her butt off regardless. In other words, a great voice. I did an album with her at that. <laughs> On the day of release, the company went bankrupt. <laughs> The music business today versus the music business back when you started, like which which has more problems? Well, the, the major difference, I think a lot of people uh, who've been around as, uh, as long as I have, or even not as long as I have, will agree, is that the music business then was staffed by music people. Today, for the most part, is staffed by bean counters who know nothing about music and are only interested in the bottom line. I find that's the major difference. Right. But you still haven't been paid for uh, Friday on the Oh, line. God, no, God, no, no. He, he, he uh, Albert went back to Australia. I'm, I'm in London and 
uh, basically said, sue me. I said, you, you know, yeah, right. I'm sitting in London. You're, you're several thousand miles away in Australia. Who's going to win? Besides the fact that it had to be adjudicated there. And Daddy was uh, the owner of the, the major publishing company. So I had, I had a snowball's chance in hell of collecting anything. So I didn't bother. Hmm. So di- different kind of crooks in different eras, I guess. Um. Different kind of crooks. Uh, crooks are all the same, I think. <laughs> I mean, I can name you a whole bunch, but I probably won't. Maybe in terms of how they how they threaten people. Uh, early on, they were more interested. They were more likely to threaten bodily harm than they did later on. But um, they still. Bottom line is, they all stole. So, you know, that's what it comes down to. When you listen to music at home, how do you listen to it? Do you put on records, CDs? No, I, I've got both Alexa and uh, Google Home. They both also have uh, they both have Spotify, and uh, Google Home has uh, YouTube, obviously that they own. And um, so between them, I can get practically everything I've ever done. There you go. Which which Kinks album do you like more, Face to Face or something else? Yeah, Face to Face has got some great songs on it. I I think it edges it out by a little bit. Um, uh, in fact, I've been doing songs out of Face to Face recently because it's some really good stuff there. Yeah, you talked about Party Line and 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 how you you guys wanted sound effects between every song on that record, but they yeah. wouldn't let you do it. They, they, they only got it on a couple of them. Yeah, they wouldn't go for it. And also that the cover looked more psychedelic than the record was. Yeah, also true. <laughs> but then again, there's dealing with uh, with record labels, you know, which any of us that have to or have had to deal with record labels will confirm everything I'm saying is accurate. <laughs> See, and then right after Sunny Afternoon, I think you had, what, uh, Dead End Street and yeah. Big Black Smoke, which is, yeah. and Dead End Street you hear, and, and it's another one, it's almost, it's another one where it kind of takes that sound, but it's another great song, and I'm like, I don't know why that one wasn't a big hit, too. And, and it, it, it actually was a hit, it wasn't a big hit, it should have been a much bigger hit, I think, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's any last uh, secrets of the business you want to share that you haven't uh, shared with anyone else. I think that good records uh, are certainly in the hands of the people producing the records and the, and the people and the artists, which is pretty obvious, but uh, still and all, that's what it really comes down to. Um, I, I don't think there's any magic formula or there's no secrets. You know, if you're recording somebody with a great voice, then it's a great voice. If they're not a great voice, Yes, it could be corrected today because of digital, and but that's not a lot of fun to do. And there are some artists out there that I'm sure you know who they are that um, would have no career if there wasn't uh, Melodyne to correct their uh, pitch. Right. <laughs> uh, who, who, was, who was the last song or artist who really in, knocked you out? Um. Good question. I don't think I, I've really thought about that. I said I'm a I'm a, still I'm a huge fan of Emmylou Harris, and um, anything she she could sing the songbook or the telephone oh, yeah. book, telephone book. Um, same thing. Uh, Ray Charles could another one who could sing the telephone book. It would still be a hit, and they still sound great. 
So yeah, those certainly are two, and there's there's there are several others that could uh, probably come very close to doing that. All right. Thank you so much, Shell Tommy. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. And it's been, you know, a real pleasure to listen to all the music that you've produced over the years. And uh, it's really just a lot of my the favorite stuff in my uh, record and CD collection, because I have copies in both formats. And then I could have Alexa play them too. So, okay. uh, so great talking to you. And, and thanks so much. And, and, I'll, and we'll follow up when you get that Bowie stuff out. Good. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. That's it for episode 13 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Shell Tommy for all of the great memories, stories, and insights into making of some of Rock's most indelible records. You could read more of his remembrances on his Facebook page, and the albums he produced remain widely available. Maybe start with the Kinks face-to-face and go from there. Please return for episode 14 next Thursday as we get back to one of our favorite topics with someone who was there. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who also has great ears. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. <laughs>